Hey guys, my name's Jordan. I'm so glad to be here. Um, I graduated from Sterling a long time ago. I'm old, like more than 10 years ago. So life comes at you pretty fast. But hey, things seem to be going well here. We barely had a pool in Gleason when I was here. And now we got a pool like here apparently. So that's cool. Turn up, guys. You're doing great. Um, hey, I want to start with a question today. Um, I want to ask you guys if you have ever missed represented something in your minds. Have you ever misrepresented something in your minds? You uh, conceived of something one way in your mind, but in reality it was a totally different way. I think we do this with a lot of things. The first one obviously is the Big Mac, right? It's 10.30 at night. You're like, is it worth it to drive 25 minutes from McDonald's? Ah, it's a horrible choice. I'm going to do it anyways. You got this image in your mind. You're flying down the road and, uh, of course, at 55 because that's the speed limit. And you get there. And your Big Mac doesn't look like this. It looks like this, man, because that's what the Big Mac is in reality. It's, it's not as good as it is on the billboard or in your brain, right? Um, another one I think we do this with is hotel rooms. You, you book a hotel room. You're researching your hotel rooms. On the, on the website, it looks like this. It looks really good, right? Then you walk in, and it looks like this because they're never as good as you think they're going to be. You've never once looked at a hotel room online and then gotten there in person and be like, oh, it's better than online. Like, that's never happened to you. It's always worse without fail. I don't know what it is, but it's always worse. Um, this last one is, let's just say it's hypothetical. You're going to go, let's just say you're hypothetically married for two weeks, and your wife says, yo, let's go get a dog. And you say, I'm going to be a good husband. Let's go get a dog. And she says, oh, I have a friend who, uh, you know, has this dog they don't need, and they want to give it to us for free. And, I, and we're driving there, and I said, Great, this would be awesome. In my mind, this is my dog. I'm going to grow old with this dog. Probably not grow old because dogs don't live that long. But, you know, I'm going to grow older with this dog. And then you roll up, and this is the dog they show you. And you're just like, yo, what is happening? This is not what I envisioned in my mind. That's Cooper. He's still alive. That's all I can say about him is he's still alive. I think we do this with the enemy, too. I think we do this with God's enemy. I think that we think about the enemy of God in one way, but in reality, the enemy of God exists in a whole different way. And so that's what I want to talk about today. It's kind of different. I want to focus on the enemy of God, not God himself, which may be a little weird. But I think it's so important that we understand who the enemy of God is and, and how the enemy affects us. And I think there's two reasons why it's so important that we know the truth about God's enemy. The first is this, that... Um, it always benefits you to know about your enemy, right? Always. This is why coaches watch game film because they want to know what the other team's going to do. This is why generals read intel and look at maps before getting into battle because they want to know what the other side is like. You just want to know about your enemy. Do you guys still play tag at Sterling? Is that still a thing or did that die? It's still a thing? Um, did the winner of tag, are they here? Yo, rise up. Rise up. If you know the tag grind, you know it is a grind. So when we played tag, it was like the most paranoid three weeks on campus. Like you never knew who had you. You never knew if you were being stalked. It was low-key, like not even safe for most people. Um, but you had an enemy out there somewhere, and you knew nothing about them. That was the worst part was the paranoia. Like you're sitting in class, you're looking out the window like, is that kid just sitting in a tree to sit in a tree because it's sterling and we're weird? Or like are they like waiting for me? Like you don't know. You have an enemy, and you want to know about them. It always benefits you to know about your enemy. The second reason I think it's so important we know about our enemy is because when we are not focused on the real enemy, 
we can turn other people into the enemy. Have you guys ever experienced that? Ever had a season in your life where maybe you're not walking closely with God, and it just seems like it's so easy to demonize people in your life? Maybe people you don't agree with or people who have wronged you in your eyes. When we are not looking at the actual enemy, we make enemies of people around us, right? And, and we've all done it, and maybe some of us are there right now, but it's so easy to do, and it's one of the reasons that we have to stay focused on the real enemy. So today, what I want to do is I want to share who the enemy is. I want to share what tactics the enemy uses and, and how we can have victory over the enemy in Christ. He already has it, but we can join him in that. So let's start really quick. Who is the enemy? You may notice by now I'm not really using the names for the enemy like we tend to do in church. Like you might call him Satan or the devil or Lucifer, right? These are names we grow up thinking of the enemy. But here's the thing. The Bible never actually names the enemy. Did you know that? The Bible never gives us a name for the enemy, and I think there's a really important reason for that that we're going to talk in just a second. The Bible ascribes images and titles and descriptions to the enemy, but it never gives the enemy a name. Let's talk about a few of the names that we maybe give the enemy in our minds, or we've been taught wrongly that this is the name of the enemy, but talk about what those things really are. The first is Lucifer. I grew up in Christian school, and I was taught that Lucifer was the name of the enemy. Like, yeah, God gave Lucifer his name. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. And I thought that for like 20 years until someone told me rightly that Lucifer is actually the English translation of a Latin word, luciferos. And that's, that's a word that comes from Isaiah 14, meaning morning star. It's just a word describing the enemy, and it's kind of been turned into this name. Lucifer was never the name for the enemy. God did not name the enemy that. It's just a descriptor from Isaiah 14. The next one is the devil, right? You might think of the enemy as the devil, but here's the thing. The devil is actually comes from a, a Greek word called diabolos. Diabolos means slanderer or false accuser. And Paul, in the New Testament, calls people who go to church devils, right? He says, you guys are being devils because you are causing disunity. You are slandering everybody in the church, and it's tearing the church apart. So if you're a part of a church community and you are causing disunity and you are slandering and you are falsely accusing, you are the devil. So congratulations, you're the devil. But the devil, there's not one devil, big D. It's like, oh, man, he's so scary. It's like we can all be false accusers if we take part in that. The last one that I think is the most prevalent, um, at least in my mind, is Satan, right? We think it's his name. If, if the enemy was to walk into Starbucks and they were saying, hey, what's your name for your order? We think he would say Satan, right, because we think that's his name. But here's the thing. Satan is actually a transliteration. It's literally the same word in Hebrew, Satan, and that word just means adversary or one who stands opposed. It's just one who is in your way. And the Bible uses this word, Satan, to describe human beings just as much as it does the enemy. Did you know that? In 1 Kings 11, there are three Satans, three Satans, three adversaries who are coming against, uh, who was it? King Solomon. Because they're plotting war against him. And so 1 King 11 says there are three Satans. I won't say that in your English Bible because they don't want to confuse you. And we'll talk about it in a sec too. But there were three Satans who rose up against the king. In Numbers 22, if you know the story of Balaam's donkey who is going on the road and an angel of the Lord comes and stops the donkey, it says that angel was a Satan. It was a Satan. It was one who stood opposed in that moment. So Satan is not a name for the enemy. It is simply a describing word. It is a title, right? It is something that the enemy is, but it is not the enemy's name. I think it is really intentional that the Bible does not give the enemy a name. Um, if you know about Bible Project, Tim Mackey and John Collins are really great. There's a really short video. I want you to watch just like two minutes, and they talk about this. 
and I love everything they say, so let's show our video really quick. Um, in biblical narratives, when this spiritual rebel is described, it's described as the Satan. Mm. So it's using the title, the adversary, mm. and attaching the word the in front yeah. of it. So I, to me, that's important because I think giving this, whatever this creature is, um, I think giving it a proper name assigns a bit too much honor and dignity <laughs> to it. Because the whole point is this being is anti-creation. Mm -hmm. He's anti-good. Yeah. And the biblical authors don't ever assign it a name. Mm. They assign this creature images and titles. Mm. So I'm just trying to, to be honest, I'm just trying to imitate the biblical language about this creature. Yeah. And I think um, using the word the, I don't know. So it's a, it's a quiet revolution <laughs> <laughs> to redefine our language about uh, the Satan. And because it's how Jesus himself and the apostles also use the word the. Why is it not in our modern translations? I think, one, it sounds awkward. Yeah, it sounds super awkward. And our translations are trying to make the Bible less awkward Yeah. in terms of trying to make it into normal English. But then second, I think there's a longstanding assumption that it is a name. And so translators don't want to, you know, upset the boat too much and p put obstacles in the way of readers. And yeah. so they, they take out, they just don't represent the word the in mm. English, which I, I think is unfortunate. So hopefully that helps you understand that. Um, one thing that helped me understand it is the fact that in lots of literature and in the Bible, evil never stands for itself it only stands in opposition and Mackie kind of talked about that the enemy doesn't really stand for anything the enemy just stands against God's purpose it, it's not an entity within itself it's just it's just decreating uh, things around it understand so it doesn't deserve a name it does not need a name um, and so anyways that was helpful for me hopefully it was helpful for you too Let's talk about a few things that are going to help us understand the enemy. Let's talk about the origin of the enemy. In Ezekiel 28, we're told that God made the enemy beautiful and powerful. The enemy began as an angel of creation, made for good, right, in the Lord's army. And so it started as an, an agent of good. In Isaiah 14, we're told the enemy rebels against God, wants God's power, covets his throne. And so God throws him and anyone who followed him out of heaven. And in Ezekiel 28, that finishes it up right there, that the enemy was removed from glory. The enemy was humiliated. It was taken out of its place of power and put down on earth. And so that is where we see it now. So on this next slide now, what is the enemy up to? Is the enemy here? What's he, what's he doing? The enemy is here. The Bible says the enemy is the ruler of this world, several places. It says the enemy accuses, tempts, and deceives. So that's what the enemy is up to. The enemy is here on earth, and it is here to tempt, deceive, and accuse. Why? Why would the enemy want to do this? I struggled for a long time with, like, what, what makes me or anyone else so special? Like, why would the enemy attack me? What is that about? Why does it hate me? And then this light bulb went on. The enemy doesn't hate me or you. The enemy hates God, right? We just learned about what God did to the enemy, how it humiliated it, removed it from power, has sealed its fate. In Revelation, we learned that it's going to be destroyed forever. The enemy hates God. And so what does the enemy do to try and get back at God? Because it cannot defeat God. He's too powerful. He already tried that once. He wants to take away the thing that God loves the most, which is his creation. It's you and me. And so that is what the enemy tries to do in luring you and I away from our father is he is trying to hurt God by saying, hey, I can't hurt you, but I can separate you from your child forever. And I know that's going to sting. So let me try and do that. 
the temptation you feel, the, the depression, the anxiety, the division, all these things that the enemy will use to separate you, or maybe even good things, maybe even distractions to take your eyes off of God, it's all in an attempt to grieve the heart of God. Because the enemy sees that he is your father and loves you so much and would hate to be separated from you. That is the motivation behind the enemy. I wondered about that for a long time. If you want to know about the enemy's character, 1 Peter 5.8 says that, there we are, says we got to be alert and of sober mind because our enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. This is who the enemy is. It is a decreator. It sees good creation and it wants to destroy it. John 10.10, in the first part of that verse, Jesus calls the enemy um, a thief who only comes to kill and destroy. We've got to realize this is who we're dealing with. It is so easy to picture the enemy as a cartoon or as a guy who just wants to have fun or this juxtaposition against the goodness of God. Like, hey, these are the rules over here, but you want to you have a good time every once in a while. So come over to the wild side. We can, we can tell ourselves lies and believe falsities about the enemy, but this is who the enemy really is. It does not have your good in mind. It is, it is a lion looking to devour you, right? It is a thief that wants to steal your joy, to steal your life away from you. It is not for your good. It does not have your good in mind. It has your destruction in mind for sure. What about tactics? What are some tactics that the enemy will use to separate us from the Father? Well, first of all, we know the enemy has tactics because in 2 Corinthians 1.11, um, Paul says this. He is talking to a church, and to give you a little backstory, this church is fighting amongst themselves, right? And they're bickering. And Paul says, yo, you have to stop in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Paul's saying, hey, you guys need to cut this out. The devil is at work within you. He is trying to deceive you. And we have got, I mean, we can't be fooled by him. We know he's got schemes. We know he's got game plans, right? It's not just random acts of decreation. He's got plans systematically to take out the kingdom of God. We know that he has schemes. Now, what is the number one ski scheme of the enemy? It's really simple. It hasn't changed in forever. It is lies, man. It's, it's simple. It's like playing the guy in basketball who's got one move. Like they only make a shot from one place on the floor, and they take it every time, and that's the only spot they make it from. That is the enemy. Lies is his go-to. Th think about the garden. When, when the enemy had to get it right and had to deceive, what did he go to? He, he went to a lie. Think about in your life. What does the enemy use to throw you off track? Lies. He's got one move, right? He is a liar. He uses lies all the time. Here's the thing. His lies, they're sneaky. They're unseen. A lot of times they're passive, maybe even undetectable. And I really hate that about the lies of the enemy. I wish that they were brash. I wish they were obvious. I wish they were easy to see because it would be so much easier to defend against. Um, the enemy attacks us like the enemies of the U.S. attack it. Nobody's going to bow up to the U.S. and say, hey, let's go on an all-out war right now. Nobody's going to do that, right? I mean, knock on wood, nobody does that. The world is wild. But here's the thing. The enemy is the same way. He can't take God out one-on-one. -on -one, so what does he do? He slips in secret attacks. Let me show you this slide. This is a uh, live look. I mean, it's a screenshot, so it's somewhat live, right? But these are all the cyber attacks happening at any given point as tracked by this program. It's just a screenshot of that. And if you can read the tiny text, you'll see the number one country attacked by far is the U.S. There are tons of attacks coming in, malware, things like that, uh, other countries trying to steal secrets. And how do these attacks work? It's, a, it's like a program that's programmed to steal information or tell a lie, and it's slipped in with something that's real. 
and it's hoping you won't tell the difference, right? This is how the enemies of the U.S. attack it, and that's how the enemy attacks you. It doesn't come at you with an all-out lie because you would spot it too easily. It slips in something false with something that's, uh, that's true. Or maybe it's something that um, just looks a little bit like the truth, right? Maybe it's, it's not true, but it's right there. It's really close, and you've got to make a judgment call on if it's right or not. This is how the enemy works. It knows that you will buy the small, underwhelming lie and let it grow and grow and let it erode and erode away at truth in your heart until you are accepting the big lies. This is how the enemy works. John 8.44, Jesus says this. He says, you belong to your father. He's talking to the Pharisees here. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Jose, I like the, li- n- the nice highlight, bro. That was a good touch. That's, re- that's the key of it, right? That he is a liar. He's the father of lies. It says when he tells lies, he speaks his native language. That's wild. Lying is not something, something the enemy does. It's who he is. It's in his DNA. We know that it's going to be uh, his plan to derail you and I. Because next slide, here is what he wants to do. He knows that we are rooted in truth if we're in Christ, which is reality. And he wants to pull you out of reality and make you believe something that's false and make you live in an unreality. Why does he do this? Because the enemy knows that in reality he loses. The enemy can read. He's read Revelation 3. He knows in the end the door gets slammed. He is tossed into uh, eternal punishment forever and destroyed. And he doesn't like that. So what does he say? I'll create my own reality with lies. I will pull people into my reality with lies, which is actually an unreality, so that they can exchange the truth of God for something else. So they can forget their citizenship in heaven. They can forget that they were adopted as sons and daughters. I'm going to make them forget their identity, forget who they are. So they'll buy into what I'm saying. Because I have got to get people out of reality and into unreality. That's the enemy's only shot of having a crack at you. So this one's going to be really easy if you like easy answers. If lies are the attack, then the defense is... Truth, of course. Man, once again, Jose, with the highlight, dude, you're so on it. Yeah, with truth. Truth is obviously the weapon against the enemy. In John 8, 31 and 32, uh, it says this. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teachings, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Truth is the weapon against the enemy. It's what is going to be effective against him. In fact, it's the only thing, right? Um, and there's, there's another fact that I've learned the hard way. Maybe you've learned this the hard way, too. Truth always leads you to freedom. Lies always lead you to enslavement, right? That's just true. We don't want it to be true, but it is. Anytime you are living in truth and rooted in truth, what is really true, according to God's word, you are opening yourself up to all sorts of freedom. But anytime you believe a lie or internalize a lie or even mess with lies a little bit, you are opening yourself up to enslavement. Think about it. It makes perfect sense. When when you're walking with God and in his truth, you've never felt more free. I know it because I've been there too. But when I choose to mix that with a little bit of lies or sometimes even take seasons where I'm walking away and saying, I'm doing my own thing. I'm going to be independent and find my own good. And I end up enslaved to something, my own ego, some addiction, um, an, an ideology in the world, right? Like you make yourself a slave when you believe the lies 
of the enemy. Paul knew the importance of truth, and he made a point to communicate it to us in Ephesians 6. So we're going to pull this slide up. I don't have the text up, but if you have your phone or a Bible, we're going to read Ephesians 6, 10 through 17. I'm going to read it really quickly from the NIV, so you can just follow along with me if you want. But Paul talks about a few really key things here, and we're going to pull them out. So Ephesians 6, we're going to go 10 to 17. I'm in the NIV right here. Paul writes this. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Guys, we got to hear that so clearly today. Do you know that there's literally no one in the world that is your enemy? That you don't have an enemy that is flesh and blood. They don't exist. It is only spiritual powers, right? Our enemy is not flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after, after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Guys, there's a few things that Paul talks about here that are really key. The first one is in verse 14. He says, if you're going to stand in truth, how are you going to do it? You're going to have the belt of truth around your waist. Paul knows the importance of being rooted in truth. And so my first plea with this passage is that it might feel like people are just trying to get you to read your Bible to buy into something or to control you or whatever. I don't know what your baggage is with that. But I'm telling you from life experience and other followers of Jesus will tell you the same, that if you're not rooting yourself in truth every day, it is to your detriment. It is enslaving you when you are not rooting yourself in truth and tying yourself to Jesus every single day. So that's my first plea. And Paul knew it. He said, if you're not standing with the belt of truth around your waist, man, you're living a lie. You are enslaving yourself. The other thing I want you to see is that Paul, at least in the NIV, uses the word stand four times in that seven verse span. He says the word stand four times, which is so weird. And for a long time, I'm like, why does Paul keep saying stand? Is it like he doesn't want us to sit down or lay down like he wants us to be ready to fight a battle? That was kind of what I thought for a long time. But here's the thing. That word, man, English really does us dirty a lot because that word is so poorly translated. It shouldn't actually be stand. It should be more like abide, right? Paul is calling us to abide. And if you don't know what abide means, it's like when you set up camp somewhere. My super high-tech slide will demonstrate that, camping, because you don't know what that looks like, so I had to show you, right? Um, yeah, you've got to set up camp somewhere. You've got to abide. That's what this word should be, and Paul is calling us to this. And we've got to understand what it means to abide. What is God calling us to do, and what is he not calling us to do? We have to know that God is calling us to commune with him daily, to root ourselves in truth daily. That he is uh, wanting us to come to him for his needs, for our needs, and that he is... Uh, giving us a, a place to rest in his presence, right? That's what abiding is. You're rooting yourself in truth. You're coming to God for what you need. When you need comfort, you are running into his presence. That's what it means to abide somewhere, to live somewhere. He is not calling you to be good enough. He is not calling you to complete the checklist. He is not calling you to feel worthy of him. He is not calling you to do enough good before you get saved. That's not what abiding is. That's earning and he says, there's no way you can earn this thing. If you'll just abide in me and trust my promises, I promise I'm good enough for the both of us. 
right? You can free yourself from the lies you're living today. You can walk out in freedom today if you will just abide in me and quit trying to earn it. I think the reason that abiding is so hard for us is because abiding is more about relationship than it is accomplishment. You are all very well accomplished to be here in this room. Something that you do, you did very well to be, to be here, right? You're at the top of your game. Accomplishment's a big deal, and I get that. But when it comes to faith, we have to leave accomplishment at the door because abiding in Christ is more about relationship than it is earning it, and that sucks to hear because we love earning it, right? We love earning things, and we're really good at it. And we love to spin the wheels and try and do it. But the truth is, if we're going to abide in Christ, it is about doing the things we just talked about. Rooting yourself in him, abiding in him, creating relationship with him, not trying to be good enough. And when you can learn to do that, please teach me how. Because it is a lifelong struggle to not try and earn it. So I totally get it. Even for followers of Jesus, falling back into that trap of earning it every day, I understand. But the gospel calls us not to do that. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, next verse. Man, this is one that if you grew up in church, you know it. And if you didn't grow up in church, you probably still heard it, right? It's one that everybody knows probably. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. Once again, the highlights, Jose, killing it. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by work, so that no one can boast. This is a verse that makes sense to to us in our heads, that we've heard a lot. That it's, It's not difficult to understand what it means, but to let that trickle down into your heart is so tough. To let that trickle down from your brain into your heart, man, it's got to permeate your psyche. It's got to penetrate your affections. To not just know what this, what this verse is saying, that yeah, I didn't earn it, but to actually live it out. And to come to the cross so poor and with your hands so empty and to just say, Jesus, I literally have nothing to bring you, but you are everything. And I acknowledge that, and I'm ready to be filled up. That's what this verse is calling us to do, to abide in Christ, to create relationship, to not earn a single thing. I love this verse, and I hate this verse because it is so hard for me. Every day, I catch myself trying to earn it, trying to be good enough. It's not the way to abide in Christ. So a little phrase that we're going to put on here, it hopefully makes it easy for you to remember. Don't try, just abide. If there's something you're going to take out of here and remember, I would love it to be this. Don't try, just abide. Don't try and earn it. Just abide in the truth of Christ because that is where true life really is. We are, oh my gosh, we're so close. All right, hey, a few quick things. I have two minutes, I think. So let me wrap this up. Let's, let's wrap with three things because pastor love, pastors love doing things in threes. Okay, number one, uh, we got to know that it matters what we think about the enemy, and it, it just does. If you have an enemy you know nothing about, you're not going to be victorious over them. And so maybe a question you could ask yourself as you walk out of here, what have I believed about the enemy that isn't true, right? Maybe just even within yourself for a second, like what have I believed about the enemy that isn't true? What mental shifts do I need to make so I am better prepared to know about my enemy? That's number one. I hope that that resonates with you. Number two, know that the enemy uh, is looking to shift you from reality to unreality. He wants to pull you from reality into unreality. He's going to use lies that are paired up with truth that look a lot like truth to do it. you got to be aware of those things. You are living in truth when you're living in Christ. He wants to pull you out of that. So maybe a question for you on this is, is where am I camped at? This is a really big one. Are the most frequent and the most influential voices in my life, are they telling me the truth or are they telling me lies? We are such a product of the things around us. The voices that have influence with you, are they telling you truth or lies? My last one, and then we'll let you out of here, is don't try just abide, which we just said. Stop fighting sin physically. 
Stop trying to cut dandelions off the top of sins and actions and handle things on a surface level and just abide in Christ. Let the Holy Spirit do the work of sanctifying you, right? Let the Holy Spirit do the work because you can't do it yourself. I can't do it myself. So last thing, what dandelions am I trying to cut the tops off of? Where am I still trying to earn it, right? When you're, when you're cutting weeds and you don't pull it up by the root, you cut the top off and it comes right back. Where are you doing that in your life? Is it a habit you can't kick? Is it a mindset you can't kick? Is it um, an ideology, a thought you can't get past? Like where are you trying to will it and the Holy Spirit is trying to do it for you? So let's be aware of those things. Guys, that is my time. I really hope so desperately that this is useful for you. Whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, I hope you think differently about the enemy. And I hope we think deeply about the enemy too because it matters what we believe about him. Let me pray really quick. We'll get out of here. Father, thank you so much for this time. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you give us your word to be rooted in. Um, God, I can't do life on my own. I've tried and it doesn't work. And I know that there are people in here who would say the same. I know there are probably people in here who are still trying to do it on their own. And so I just pray for you to break their hearts, to show them that they cannot live without you, God. To be rooted in truth is to be rooted in freedom. God, show them that when their life is rooted in anything else other than you, that they are actually rooted in enslavement. Show that to them today, God. Lord, we love you so much. We want to live for you, and so we just ask that you give us the power to do that because we can't do it on our own. In your son's name we pray. Amen.